Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to do the whole chapter in this audio, verses 1 through 13. Our context is this. Paul in chapter 4, having gotten a little bit upset with the Corinthians, jumps all over them for being arrogant, for while he is a dregs, the dregs of the earth, and he's the offscourings of the earth, and he's homeless, and he's poor and he's working. They're living high off the hog, listening to these false teachers, puff being inflated with pride. And he now says, you're arrogant and there are false teachers there. And I'm going to come and I'm going to show you that I can handle these false teachers. Now, how am I going to come? Am I going to come with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He continues in his chastising mode in chapter five. I'm going to call this chapter expel the immoral brother. Verse 1, it is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife. Now that word tolerated actually is not in the original Greek. It's in brackets in my Holman Christian Study Bible translation. So you could read it literally in the kind of sexual morality that is not even among the Gentiles. Well, the reason they put that word tolerated in there is because there's a choice. Does that mean it's not even mentioned among the Gentiles? The KGV has not even named among the Gentiles? Or is it not even in existence among the Gentiles? The problem with that is Gentiles did this sort of thing. They did all kinds of sexual immoral things. So I think that's a reasonable interpolation there. But even the nasty Romans who were famous for their sexual immorality and the origins and all... Even they did not tolerate incest, because this is the sexual immorality that Paul's talking about here, not just your ordinary adultery sort of in, uh, Im- immorality. This is incest. The NIV Study Bible quotes Cicero, says that Cicero said that incest was practically unheard of among the Romans. Adam Clark said Cicero, Cicero styles this kind of incest as incredible and unheard of wickedness. So it might have been practiced among the Gentiles, but they didn't give they didn't give credit to it. They didn't approve of it. What kind of sexual immorality were they talking about? Was Paul talking about? A man had his father's wife. Now, a father's wife could be one's mother, in which case the man was living with his mother. That is so gross. But Paul would have said mother. He wouldn't have said father's wife. So this is obviously referring to a the man's stepmother. His father's wife, the man's mother had died or had been divorced. And so the father took another wife, and then the son is in the house with the his father's new wife, the stepmother, and then he sleeps with her. Now, that could mean the, the his father is dead or probably alive. But at any rate, it was extremely disgusting. And Paul says, you guys have let it go on and hadn't done anything about it. That's what this whole chapter is about. Now, he says it's widely reported, not just reported, but widely reported. So don't go around, don't even think about trying to deny that this is going on. Now, you remember the Corinthians had written Paul a letter earlier that Paul had referred to in the previous chapters, but they hadn't written it in the letter. 1 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says, It has been reported to me about you, my brothers. In other words, the word came. By members of Chloe's household. Now, that was about the divisions uh, among the Corinthian church. That was reported in that oral report. And also, here we have in verse 1, it is widely reported. I assume that that includes the report that from Chloe's household that came about the divisions. There was also the report that, hey, there's a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law in our church here. Excuse me, not his mother-in-law, his stepmother in our church here. Now, why did they not mention it in the letter? Probably just like they didn't mention the factions in the letter that they had previously sent to Paul. Because they were ashamed of it. Now, let's 
look a little bit more closely into the issue of what kind of sexual immorality this man was doing. Option number one, he could have married his stepmother. This is what Adam Clark affirms. This would assume that his father had died. His father could have been divorced, actually, but he probably died, and so the man marries his stepmother. problem with that option, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown points out, is neither Christian or Gentile law would sanction such a marriage. So if the courts knew about it, or the, the officials, marriage officials knew about it, they'd say, hey, you can't marry your stepmother. Get out of here. All right, if the law wouldn't allow that, then maybe another option was the man kept her as a concubine, which is sort of like a virtual wife, a kind of a, a junior wife. Well, you still... I guess he figures he could get around around not having legal sanction for that. I don't know. If you have a concubine, somebody's got to legally affirm it, and you you still might have the same problem. But maybe Corinth was so notoriously profligate in its sexual immorality that the officials might wink at concubinage and say, okay, well, you're not going to marry her. Well, you can be a concubine. That's fine. We'll let you go. That's a possibility. That's John Gill's idea. Or it could just mean he shacked up with her incestuously. Whether his father was living or dead, either way, he shacked up with her. Sounds like the father was still alive. If we read in 2 Corinthians 7:12, Paul is referring to this unfortunate situation. He says, so even though I wrote to you, it was not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wronged or because of the one who was wronged. I didn't write to you to take care of the man who was wronged to take care of his interest. Well, that sounds like the man's still alive. You usually don't worry about somebody who's wronged after he's dead. If, you know, it's hard to wrong a dead person. And Adam Clark says most think the father was alive because of this verse. So here we have a man, his father's still alive, and the man is shacked up with his father's wife. That is disgusting. Sexual immorality, by the way, it, the Greek that translates that is porneo, from which we get the English word pornography. And that's basically what this man was doing, is pornography. Now when Paul says it's not even, this kind of incest is not even named, this kind of porneia, this kind of sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, not even tolerated among the Gentiles, he could be referring to the Greek and Roman Gentiles because they were sort of more civilized. But unnatural copulations were often practiced among other pagan nations. For example, India, Bactria, Persia, Arabia, that's in the Middle East. Media is in the Middle East and Ethiopia and Northern Africa. I don't know. But at any rate, it was so dis- gross and disgusting that Paul had to say something about it. So Paul goes on with verse 2 in 1 Corinthians 5, And you are inflated with pride, instead of filled with grief, so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. Inflated with pride, that's the fourth time Paul has used this phrase in the book. The English Standard Version has puffed up, but I like inflated with pride. It sounds like a balloon full of hot air. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, these metaphors he's talking about, planting and watering, so that you may learn from us the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be inflated with pride in favor of one person over another. So that's the first way the Corinthians were puffed up or inflated with pride, because they were having factions and saying one faction, one leader of a faction is more important than another. Another two verses where we have that phrase inflated with pride Inflated with pride is in 1 Corinthians 4, 18 through 19. Now, some are inflated with pride as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will know not the talk, but the power of those who are inflated with pride. There's the other two instances of that phrase. And they were prideful saying, oh, Paul, he's not even going to come here to take care of the church. He doesn't love the church. He's too busy in Ephesus. He cares more about those Ephesian brothers than he cares about you. But we, we. We know how to teach you. We know how to take care of you. 
And Paul's saying, no, they're full of it. They're full of pride. Let me give you some options from the commentaries about what exactly this kind of pride is. I've sort of given you an idea, but let me read some other ideas. This is from the NIV Study Bible and John Gill. These people were proud of their liberty to do whatever they wanted to. Morality be damned, which would be a distortion of grace. They could say, we're free in Christ. We're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want to. John Gill and Jameson Foster Brown suggest that maybe they're proud of their learning and their oratorical ability, their love of Greek philosophy and rhetoric. John Gill says maybe they're proud of their spiritual gifts, as Paul's going to get to in, first, in chapters 12 and 14. Maybe they were proud that they weren't participating in the immorality of the incestuous man living with his stepmother. Well, we're not doing that. We're looking down on him because he's such a nasty sinner. We're not. We're pure. That's John Gill's idea, even though they're doing nothing to stop it, but they weren't doing it. That's kind of a speculative reach, in my opinion. Adam Clark says maybe they were proud of their factions and their factions' leaders. I think that's exactly what they were proud of. Some of these are speculative. I think that what's really clear is they were proud of their learning, their philosophical wisdom, their oratorical ability. No question. First three, first four chapters point that out clearly. They were proud of their spiritual gifts. 12 and 14, those chapters point that out clearly. And they were proud of their factions and their factions' leaders in the earlier chapters in 1 Corinthians. Now, Paul says, if you weren't, you should have been filled with grief so that you could remove this man from your congregation. And that means excommunicated, as you would think that anybody would believe. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that's what it mean, means, but John Gill says no, it means to kill him, <laughs> cut off by death. You, you should have been filled with grief about that sin so much that he might be killed, cut off from your congregation. Now, I give this a five exclamation point reference here. Adam Clark says, this is supposed by some to refer to the punishment of death, by others to excommunication. I can't believe somebody believes it, that Paul wants this guy to be killed. He said so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. He wants him to be killed instantly? No. It means excommunication. James and Vossen Brown have a quote here. The incestuous person was hereby brought to bitter repentance in the interval between the sending of the first and second epistles. In other words, he's kicked out of the church. He's bitter. Or he's, he's remorseful, he's, he's sad. And then Paul writes the next letter to Corinth, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2, 6-8. He refers to this punishment, this excommunication. He says, the punishment inflicted by the majority, that was not killing him. They didn't murder the guy. The punishment inflicted by the majority, that's excommunication, is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead, instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm, reaffirm your love to him. And that's, that's a great verse when people get caught in sin and they repent. And let it go. Don't bring it up again. It's over. I don't care if they were strippers, fornicators. I don't care what they were. I don't care if they voted for a Democrat. doesn't matter. Forgive them. Oh, I put something political in there. I'm so sorry. Notice that this was a sad thing for a sinner to be kicked out of church. A sad thing. Well, the grief there is referring to the sin itself, but it was also a sad thing to kick somebody out of church because it was a sad thing for the person that was kicked out of church because Paul says, otherwise this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. So in other words, the sin should cause grief to the congregation and then the person who's committed the sin ought to have grief too, but not excessive grief because he should be restored. Purpose of church discipline is always restoration, not permanent excommunication. 
We go to verses 3 through 5 in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul continues, For though I am absent in body, but present in spirit. Remember, he's absent, he's in Ephesus. I am absent in body, but present in spirit. I have already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were present. So he wasn't there, but he said, Nah, this man's guilty. I've heard the reports, too many evidence, too many reports, two or three witnesses at least. I know the man's guilty. In verse 4, when you, that's plural, when you guys, when y'all, when y'all are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, the key thing here in this verse, in my opinion, is who's doing the turning over to Satan? Because here we have an issue of church government. I remember years ago when I was trying to convince someone that apostles did not have authority over the local church, just as missionaries today don't have authorities over local church. And this brother looked at me sort of smugly, and he said, what about 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through 5? Paul kicked somebody out of the church. And at the time, I was using the New American Standard Version, Bible. Now, let me read you that translation. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. So the NASB translates it. Translates it. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. Well, the brother had me over a barrel there. But now, about 45 years later, he's gone on to be with the Lord now, so I can't go back and show him how he was wrong, unfortunately. But I see by looking at the Greek that that is an, a screwed up translation. The word that is used there to turn over to Satan is paradunai, which is the aorist active infinitive of paradidomi, which is means I turn you over to Satan. I turn you over, excuse me. And so paradune is the word in verse 5. Now, the NASB translates it, that I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. Well, there's three possible ways to translate it. And I went through the English translations. That infinitive can be translated straight as an infinitive. So it would be to turn him over to Satan. You have to go back to the previous verse 4. You are assembled together. Why? To turn him over to Satan. In which case, the Corinthians are turning the man over to Satan. The Corinthians are excommunicating the sinner, not Paul. All right, so how many translations have translated as to turn him over? The assembly gathered together, in a, in, when you're assembled to gather together to turn him over. The KGV, the American Standard Version, the English Revised Version, J.P. Green's Literal Version, and Young's Literal Version. Okay, so those five translations back me up that it's not Paul kicking the person out of the church. Another way to translate it, that infinitive, is just to translate it as a finite verb, not an infinite, not an infinitive, but a finite verb, just a normal verb. And so it would read like this, you guys turn him over. So the translations that use a form of that, you turn him over, where the assembly turns him over, you Corinthians turn him over, not Paul, not I, not Paul, but you Corinthians turn him over. Well, we have the Holman Christian Study Bible, the NIV, the New International Version, the Amplified Bible, the English Standard Version, the New King James Version. Notice the New King James switched from infinitive to a finite verb. You got, you guys turn him over. The Revised Standard Version and the New Revised Standard Version. All right, so all together now I have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 translations that back me up on this. I found one translation to back up the NASB. So there's two translations that that translated, I have decided to turn him over. Now, how do they, well, the, uh, the translations of the New American Standard Bible and the Lexham English Bible. The Lexham English Bible has a note, a marginal note that says, 
the words I have decided are implied. Notice, notice, implied, because it's not in the original Greek. I have decided, the words I have decided, are implied from the statement, I have already passed judgment in verse 4. In other words, Paul's already made up his mind that the man's guilty, so therefore he made up his mind, therefore he's going to turn him over to Satan. Well, that's a translator's choice, and not many translators go along with that. I mean, it's possible because it's an infinitive. You don't know, you know, it's an infinitive. So you got to put something there. You either translate it as an infinitive, or you you choose your finite verb that you're going to replace the infinitive with, and they chose that, but I think they chose wrongly, because nowhere can you find an apostle exercising authority over a local church. In fact, In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24, Paul writes this, I do not mean that we have control of your faith. Well, now, there's a bald statement. Paul says to the Corinthians, I do not mean that we have control of your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand by faith. Folks, think about it. Even today, we don't let missionaries control local churches. Back then, apostles didn't control local churches, except they might have led them when they first got it started. But once they left them, the local church was in charge of itself. There was no extra local denominational authority over them. There was no pope. There was no bishop. There was none of that nonsense. Now, let me mention one more of this, in my opinion, crazy idea that is talking about not excommunication here when Paul talks, says the unbeliever should be removed, but it's talking about that he should die. John Gill, or excuse me, Adam Clark, that was John Gill's idea. Adam Clark backs Gill up by saying, while the flesh was destroyed, the spirit was saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Referring to that, no such power as this remains in the church of God. None such should be assumed. Their pretensions to it are wicked as they are vain. Well, at least he admits we don't have the power anymore. But he was saying that Paul had that power. It was the same power which Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead. By which Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead. And Elamus the sorcerer struck blind. Apostles alone are entrusted with it. So Clark is saying that Paul had the power to go over there and strike that man dead. Nonsense! Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Because excommunication, of which the Corinthians themselves had the power, Paul delegates here to the Corinthian church his own special power as an apostle of inflicting corporeal disease or death in punishment for sin. So at least Jameson Foster Brown's a little bit more moderate than Gill. He says, well, the Corinthians are going to do the excommunication, which obviously is true, but he was going to add something to it. He was going to kill him. The Corinthians were going to kick him out of the church, and Paul's going to come over there and zap him. Uh Uh-uh. That can't be. Well, what does Paul mean in verse 4 when he says, I have already decided about the one who's done this thing as though I were present. That doesn't mean he's exercising any power to kick him out. Of the assembly, he's just making a, a judgment, a value judgment. The guy's, the guy's guilty. Now, of course, if he was a member of that church, he would have to participate in the church discipline process, which is described in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, and the whole church is to consensually decide the man's guilty enough to get kicked out of the church. Let's read that. Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's step one. Verse 16, step two, but if you won't listen, take one or two more with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. That's step two. If he pays no attention to them, tell the church, not the elders, folks, but the church. That's step three. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be as an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. In other words, let him get kicked out of the church. That's step four. And notice it's the whole church that does the the excommunication, not the elders. That gives transparency. If the man's guilty, everybody knows why he's guilty, and everybody knows what the punishment is. None of this gossip, gossip, gossip. All these church scandals you see, 
the churches are too big to have church discipline because they say, well, it's too much. You know, the press is going to be in there. There's thousands of people out there in the mega church congregation, and we just can't talk about all this nasty stuff in front of all those people. So we'll talk about it behind closed doors. Well, point number one, they didn't have massive churches back then. Point number two, they didn't discuss moral failings with a, a, a small body of elders, which then went out and pronounced judgment and said, this is what we have decided. No, it was the whole church that decided things like this. And if he is, if the whole church takes a vote and says, no, he's not, he's innocent, he didn't do it, well then, everybody knows. Church discipline is a very serious thing. It needs to be carried out. And notice this here, you know, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's telling, telling them, you did not do church discipline. And if we're going to take this as a, a pattern for us, which I think we should, we have to do church discipline. You got homosexuality or adultery or pornography or whatever it is, leavening your body, you need to cut it out, remove it. Don't kill the person, but excommunicate them all right paul says that he 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 says when you are assembled that's you plural you corinthians are assembled again that shows that you're getting together to do a church discipline because you're all gathered together as a whole body not a body of elders but the whole church you're assembled in the name of our lord jesus well the name of course refers to the authority the power and the character of the lord jesus and with the power of our lord jesus the lord jesus has the authority the power to exercise to enforce holiness in his church. So you see, excommunication is a serious business. Church discipline is a serious business. Paul says he's with them in his spirit. Now that's just like saying the baseball player injures himself, he's in the hospital, he can't participate in the World Series, and so he tells his teammates, I'm with you in spirit. doesn't mean he's actually there, it just means I'm with you. And Paul is saying, look, I'm with you, Corinthians. I'm with you. Excommunicate the guy. But they are the ones that did the excommunication, not Paul. What does it mean to turn one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Well, this flesh, as usual, is ambiguous. It could mean his sinful passions, as Paul talks about flesh in Romans 7, that principle that's in us that seduces us and pulls us towards sin. Well, if you take it that way, that means the excommunicated guy has his sinful passions mortified, killed, and so he says, oh, I'm sorry, he repents. And so that when he dies, he's saved in the day of the Lord. I'm assuming the day of the Lord means when he sees him. So that's what it could, it could be that. Or it could be in his physical body, his skin and bones. The, 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 the layer of molecules that covers his skin, that covers his bone, his skin. In other words, his flesh. So it could mean that turn him over so that God can, excuse me, so that Satan can destroy his flesh, his physical body. But he'll die and he'll go to heaven because... Even though his body's gone, his earthly life is over, at least he's going to live in, in heaven with God. And he's not going to pollute the church anymore with his sin because he's gone. Now, there's a lot of theology in that. And so we need to look at this word saved so that his spirit may be saved. So let's look at some options as to what the man's situation was. Was he saved when he was excommunicated or was he not saved when he was excommunicated? Well, let's take the first option. Let's assume he wasn't saved. He was living as a hypocritical Christian in the church, sleeping with a stepmother, and so the church gets rid of this unsaved person, and then his flesh is destroyed, either his sinful passions or his skin, his body, and he gets and he turns his life over to the Lord because he realizes he's such a sinner. That's possible. Or it could be he was already saved when he was excommunicated, and we, of course, assume he can't lose his salvation. He, he was saved, he's excommunicated. Well, if he can't lose his salvation... Well, then how can his spirit then be saved? Turn him over so that his flesh may be destroyed, so that his spirit may be saved. But he's already saved, so why are you saying his spirit may be saved? 
Well, the answer to that, as John Gill points out, is that spirit, his spirit is saved in, contradiction, in contradistinction to his body, which was destroyed by Satan. Satan. Paul is not trying to say the man could be born again twice. He's saying, look, his body's going to be destroyed, leaving his spirit, which is already saved, and his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord. Let's go now to verse 6, 1 Corinthians 5. Your boasting is not good, Paul continues. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? And what he's talking about is you got one guy living with his mother-in-law, and pretty soon you're going to have a lot of other sexual immorality spreading through your church if you don't get rid of this, if you don't remove him from your presence. Now, what is he talking about? Remember, Paul is thoroughly Jewish. He's using Jewish metaphors here. He's referring to Exodus 12:15. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days at the Passover. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. In that ceremony, in that festival, leaven obviously stands for sin, so they would symbolically remove all the sin from their house, all the leaven from the house. And to this day, when Jews do the Passover, they do the same thing. It's a ritual. I think the kids run through the house looking for leaven and so forth. Now, notice that that little bit of yeast which permeates the whole batch, that usually or often right here refers to sin, but not always, because... How about the parable of the woman with the measure of meal? She put a little yeast in it, and the yeast permeated the whole dough, and the and the and the bread puffed up. And what Paul was saying, the kingdom of God is like, what Jesus said. The kingdom of God is like this. It starts out small, a little bit of yeast, and next thing you know, that bread is risen, 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 risen. That symbolizes the kingdom of God spreading all throughout the world and getting larger and larger and larger, which it has, over a billion people living today, not to count all the people who have died and gone on to be with the Lord. And I suggest to you that how do you reconcile that with straight as the gate and narrow the way? Because Paul was talking to Pharisees back then. He wasn't talking about the spread of his kingdom. The spread of his kingdom is going to be like leaven. This metaphor of leaven was very common among the Jews, as John Gill says. He says, your boasting is not good. What kind of boasting? Well, their favorite teachers, who's ahead of this faction, their philosophical abilities, their rhetorical abilities, their spiritual gifts, as we've mentioned many times before. We go to verse 7 and 8 of 1 Corinthians 5. Paul continues, clear out, excuse me, clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. There's the old and the new, the contrast between the old and the new. And again, he's referring to getting rid of that sinful incestuous man you're indeed unleavened in other words you are a spiritual lump a spiritual loaf but you got some leaven in you you're indeed unleavened for our christ our passover has been sacrificed now think about that this is the same corinthian church that's guilty of all kinds of stuff arrogance division not looking after the poor at the lord's supper getting drunk at the lord's supper being gluttonous at the lord's supper abusing spiritual gifts the doctrine's not right about the resurrection of the dead you didn't do church discipline. I mean, you could go on and on about the Corinthian church as a role model, a reverse role model about how not to do church. And yet Paul says, you are a new batch and you are unleavened. In other words, you don't, you're, you, you are a unleavened lump, which means you are a church that doesn't have sin. Well, obviously he's talking about their, their, how they are in Christ, their position in Christ, if you will, how Christ looks at them. He's not talking about how they're they're actually walking. And so there's a contrast between how you, how you are. Are you going to live out who you are, your nature? Live it out. When you live out who you are, you're going to, your conduct's going to change. And so he says, verse 8, Therefore let us observe the feast. Let us do it right, not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Again, he's using that Passover metaphor. Hey, celebrate Passover. Christ is our Passover. So celebrate him and let's fellowship with him and let's eat our meals with him let's eat the lord's supper with jesus 
and let's don't have any yeast with us. Let's don't have a man shacked up with his his stepmother while we're having the Lord's Supper with Jesus. And he mentions that the yeast that they need to get rid of is not only the, he calls it the yeast of malice and evil. The evil would be the, in my opinion, is referring to the evil sexual immorality of the man living with his stepmother. That's the evil yeast. And there's also the yeast of malice. That's probably referring to the false teachers, the divisiveness, the backbiting, the factionalism and so forth. So get rid of all that. Eat the unleavened bread with sincerity and truth. Be sincere with one another. Be open with one another. Speak truth to one another. Be a new batch. Get rid of that old yeast. That metaphor new is used a lot, by the way. 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is a famous quote. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and look, new things have come. In fact, I did a word study on you one time. I don't have the scriptures in front of me, but it's amazing how many times it shows up. Well, think about it. The new covenant. How about a new and living way we're to walk in now? Paul uses that, or the scripture uses that metaphor a lot. Now, when Paul, as I mentioned earlier, when Paul says that they were unleavened, and I said that refers to their position, the NIV study Bible says the same thing, says they were positionally in the eyes of God, and they quote 1 Corinthians 1, 2 to show that. To God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints. A saint is a sanctified one. And a saint is a holy one. Sanctified means you're holy. God's church in Corinth was holy, but they weren't acting like it. With all those in every place who call on the name of Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And some of you used to be like this, like these fornicators and idolaters, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And what Paul is saying here is, that here is, when you were justified, when you were declared legally righteous, you were set apart, consecrated to God, separated from the world. That's what sanctified means. You were made holy, even though you're not acting like it now. So I think it's perfectly legitimate to make that distinction between positional holiness and actual walking it out holiness. Because the NIV Study Bible goes on to say, yeah, even though their position was unleavened, no sin, but their conduct wasn't so unleavened. Notice how Paul appeals to who they really are in order to get them to fly right. That's much better than a moralistic appeal to do good. You Corinthians ought to do good. You ought to do good. Paul says, no, you are saints. You are called. You are unleavened with sin. He, he appeals to who they are in Christ to get them to behave properly. Now, Paul says that Christ is our Passover in these verses. This is referring to Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. Christ, our Passover. So the Passover ceremony, which is in Exodus, I don't have it in front of me. I think it's Exodus 12. It obviously talks about the, the, the symbolism of that meal, obviously referring to the slain lamb. You know, you kill the lamb, you put the blood on the lentils and the doorpost and all, and, and the avenging angel of death flies over and can't kill you because you're protected by the blood. You're under the blood and all that. So the Christ is our Passover. He's a lamb led to the slaughter. John 1, 29. The next day, John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was actually crucified on Passover, which makes him even more the Passover lamb. Remember, the Passover meal was Thursday night, probably. That was the night before, and then Friday. And, of course, the Passover started in the evening, so Thursday evening was Passover. The meal was the night before, and the next day Jesus was crucified, and that's on Friday. And so he was crucified on Passover, so even more he's the Passover lamb. He's the fulfillment of that Old Testament 
ceremony. Now, when Paul says that let us observe the feast, he's not speaking literally here. He's not saying let's have a Passover feast. Of course not. That's done away with. That's the old covenant, and that's done away with. He's talking about observe the Passover feast metaphorically, not actually. Now, actually, in the Passover, the yeast is cleaned out, as I pointed out earlier. But metaphorically, Paul says, I want the incestuous man's sin to be cleaned out. So let's observe the feast, guys. Get rid of the leaven. We go to verses 9 through 10 of 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. Now, this letter is a dispute, and it's amazing how the commentators are getting a big uproar over this. Is it, I wrote to you in the letter is what the actual Greek says. It can be translated A sometimes, you know, but it's Tay, it's the I wrote to you in the letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Would you, is that a previous letter? Or is that this letter here in 1 Corinthians 5? Well, the NIV study Bible says it's a previous, previously written letter, which has not been preserved. Gill agrees with that. Jameson first, Fawcett and Brown agree with that. And, I think, and I'm not an expert on this, but I think it's probably true. Now, when this previous letter was written, was it written before the Corinthians letter and oral report came to Paul? that was mentioned earlier in the previous chapters, or was it after? Did did Paul write them after he had received that report and received the Corinthian letter from the Corinthians? I don't know. It might be just because I'm not learned enough to know, but I don't think anybody knows. But at any rate, he wrote them in this letter, in this previous letter. Oh, let me mention the, let me mention the, uh, let me, let me give you some, some support for, the idea that Paul is saying, I wrote to you in this letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. The problem with that, he, with that is he never actually said that. He never told him not to associate with sexually immoral people unless he's referring to the fact of you need to kick this incestuous guy out of the church, perhaps. But Adam Clark says this, quote, The wisest and best skilled in biblical criticism agree that the apostle does not refer to any other epistle than this, 1 Corinthians, and that he speaks here of some general directions which he had given in the foregoing part of it. General directions like kick the immoral guy out. This is Adam Clark. Well, we'll let the scholars debate that. I don't really care. Well, let me let me mention one other argument, saying that it was a previous letter in Second Corinthians 10:10. Paul says, "For it is said his letters (plural) are weighty and powerful." So that means the false teachers in Corinth must have received more than one letter. First Corinthians is one. Well, where's the other one? Well, that would be the previous letter here that Paul is writing, talking about in verse 9. So I, I, I believe that he written them, he wrote them a previous letter. And in that letter, he said, don't associate with sexually immoral people. The Corinthians misunderstood that. They said, oh, that means it, since everybody in Corinth is sexually immoral, it's like me in America. What if I told you you can't associate with sexually immoral people? Well, that means you couldn't get up and go to work. You probably wouldn't have any friends. Everybody's sexually immoral in America. Paul said, I didn't mean that. He says, I did not mean the immoral people of this world you got to associate with them because you have to live in the world. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. What he was talking about is don't associate with people who claim to be Christians in your church. you got to excommunicate them. Now, Adam Clark makes an interesting point. When Paul says that you'd have to leave the world if you couldn't associate with immoral people, that means there weren't enough moral people to associate with in Corinth, which shows how incredibly pervasive the sin was in Corinth. You would actually have to leave the world if you were forced to live that kind of life where you couldn't associate with an, an immoral person because everybody in Corinth is immoral. 
And Corinth actually was noted for that. The the temple there had a thousand temple prostitutes. It was a trade city and lots of port city. There were ports on either side of the Isthmus of Corinth, bringing bringing in a bunch of sailors and traders who tend to be immoral away from home. Now, here's some other scriptures which show that Christians must associate with worldlings. We have to. 1 Corinthians 10.27, if one of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions of conscience. Hey, an unbeliever invites you, go on, go on over to the unbeliever's house. You're not supposed to say, oh, I, I'm too holy for you. You're a sinner. I don't want to go. Now, I know I'm, I have gone to so many unbelieving banquets in China because I had to go ceremonial type things, you know. I didn't like going. I'd much rather spend my time with Christians. But, you know, hey, you have to. John 17:15 says this. Jesus, this is the high priestly prayer. I am not praying that you, Father, take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. We have to live in this world, and we have to be subject to the temptations of the world and the flesh and the attacks of the devil. But God the Father, Jesus has prayed that God the Father would protect us from the devil. 1 Corinthians 5:11. Paul goes on. He says, but now I am writing you... And what, but that now doesn't mean temporally. It means given the situation that, that we have here in Corinth and, and in the Corinthian church, because of that situation, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer. And that's the key distinction. You don't, in the world, you're going to associate with worldlings. That's what worldlings do. That's They just are. They're worldlings. There's nothing you can do about that. But if somebody claims to be a believer and you associate with him and he's sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such a person. Now, why is that? That's the key qualification as a believer acting like that. Because if someone calls himself a believer while acting like that and sinning like that, it gives a false testimony of Christ, as the NIV Study Bible says. It's degrading. It's reprehensible. Associating with such practices would put the stamp of approval on the practice. And then people might be wondering, well, what kind of stuff the rest of the church is doing? What's the matter with these Christians? Just like that Westmont, what's that, that West, Westport, that idiotic church out there that has signs that says that anybody that fights in the Iraqi wars or death to them, they're sinning against God and death to fags and all this kind of nonsense that they're, they're doing. And people, I can see people saying, yeah, yeah, that's what Christians are. That's what they are. No, that stuff puts bad, bad odor on the rest of Christians. You, Christians have to practice church discipline. Paul says in Romans 16, verses 17 through 18, Now I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause dissensions and obstacles contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. Avoid them. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Now again, there's, a, there's an issue here. These people, notice that it says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 11, don't associate with those who claim to be a believer. Now that might be a false claim or it might be a true claim. So, Paul's not really making a distinction. If somebody says that they're a believer and then you're in church and they're acting sinful, you've got to get them out. Either they either repent or they get out of the church. Here's another verse that says we're not supposed to associate with sinners in the church. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from us. Now there, Paul doesn't say it's a brother claiming to be a brother he says from every brother which sounds like it's a real honest to goodness christian who's acting like an idiot and sinning wants to kick him out and i believe christians can sin i don't believe this nonsense if, if, if people are saying there's no such thing as a carnal christian you hear that a lot 
I think what they mean is there's no separate category for carnal versus spiritual, and you have a certain spiritual experience to get you from the carnal stage to the spiritual stage. I, I agree with that. I don't believe there is. I think that all of us have some carnality in us, and all of us have some fruit. But when it gets to be really bad to, up to the level of church discipline, and I believe Christians can get that bad. I believe that that man in Corinth who was sleeping with a stepmother, he very well could have been a Christian. Can't prove it, but I think so. But anyway, we're supposed to keep away from such brothers who walk irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from Paul. Second Thessalonians three fourteen fifteen. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. This is what the Amish call shunning somebody. Yet don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Well, again, brother, that sounds like somebody that's not merely claiming to be a brother, but who is actually a brother. Well, let's look at this, this problem of whether this person is sinning as a brother or just claiming to be a brother. Here's some options. He could have falsely claimed to be a believer to purposely deceive the rest of the church. What Paul says, don't associate with him. Or he could be, he falsely claimed to be a believer because he was self-deceived. He thought he was a believer, but he actually wasn't. Doesn't matter. He's committing sin. Kick him out of the church. Or it could be he was actually a believer. And then somebody might say, well, how can a Christian do something this immorally? Not even the Gentiles do that. And, I, and my answer is, hey, I know plenty of Christians who do immoral stuff. Two of them I know right now are serving time in federal prison. One of them was a great reform guy. Talked about all his reform the theology. He's in federal prison, last I heard. Another one, evangelizing people, casting out demons. Federal prison. Whether he's saved. Again, you never know. You know, I, you know the verse that says, you know, you cast out demons in my name. And Jesus said, go away, I never knew you. There's always that possibility. And I'm not, that's a big controversy. I'm not going to get into that. But it doesn't matter for church discipline's sake. If they claim to be a brother, whether they are or are not, it makes no difference. They are subject to church discipline. Kick them out. Remove the immoral brother. You know, those Corinthian Christians, many of them were babies because Paul called them infants. They were influenced by the horrible moral environment in Corinth. That's probably why they had so much sexual sin and why Paul had to exhort against it. But remember, Paul calls them saints and brothers and sanctified all the way through the book. So I believe that they were Christians who could do a lot of bad stuff. And Paul's saying, hey, kick them out or either get them to repent first, of course. But if they go through the three stages of church discipline and don't repent, they need to be removed from the congregation. Don't even eat with such a person, Paul says. What does that mean, eat privately? What does that mean at the Lord's Supper where the church ate together? Well, there's a fine distinction between private and the Lord's Supper because the church met in homes, and that sounds sort of private. So I don't make the distinction. It doesn't matter whether it's a love feast or a private meal. You're not supposed to associate with these people. Shame them so they'll repent and come back to the church. We go to verses 12 through 13, and we'll finish up 1 Corinthians 5. Paul continues, For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? but God judges outsiders, put away the evil person from among yourselves. Now, Paul finishes up by saying you got to exercise church discipline outside. Hey, it's none of your business. That's the magistrate. That's the government does that. And God will do that too. That's not your business, but by golly, it is your business inside the church. In fact, Paul says, don't you judge those who are inside. He's apparently appealing to previous practices of church discipline that the Corinthian church had exercised. And he finishes up the chapter, he says, put away the evil person from among yourselves. Now, Paul here, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, Paul is giving a preliminary hint of his objection to the Corinthians going to law with believers. He says, hey, that's outsiders. Uh-uh. Inside is what we need to worry about. Later on in the next chapter, he's going to say, 
you Corinthians, instead of handling your disputes internally, you go into the law courts that are run by unbelievers. And here he's, he's saying the same, he's a similar thing. He says, what business of mine to judge outsiders? And I guess, I guess similar to that is what business do outsiders have to judge you? You don't judge them. They don't judge you. We're in a different kingdom here. We're in the kingdom of Christ. God judges outsiders. Now, this is good here because you're living in a totally pagan environment. Paul was and the Corinthians were just like in America. And so the, the American government has made homosexual marriage, quote unquote marriage, sodomy, as something that's perfectly legal and moral. And our culture has affirmed, that, affirmed them on that. Well, guess what? We don't have any business with that. If they want to do that, that's fine. It's disgusting, but we have the business to judge what's inside the church. And we got churches now accepting homosexual pastors and refusing to put homosexuals outside the church, practicing homosexuals. Well, they're violating 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says God judges outsiders. Well, one way that it is done is through the civil magistrates in Romans 13, verse at the end of verse 4, he says, For government is God's servant and avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. And, of course, God judges outsiders not only through the means of earthly magistrates, also through the final judgment. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then skipping on here, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The second death, anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Nice, nice metaphors to show that hell ain't going to be a pleasant place. God will take care of that. It's not our business to do that. Vengeance is God's, says the Lord, not ours. But church discipline is ours. We're supposed to take care of the sin. Put away, put away the sin from yourself. Let's look. This is falling in Old Testament tradition, actually. Let's look at some six verses from Deuteronomy that talk about how the Old Testament Israelites needed to get the leaven out of their lump. Deuteronomy 17.7, the witnesses' hands are to be the first in putting him, this is referring to an idolater, to death. And after that, the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from you. How? By stoning an idolater. Deuteronomy 19.19, you must do to him, this is a perjurer, as he intended to do his brother. You must Purge the evil from you. Deuteronomy 21, 21. Then all the men of the city will stone him, referring to a gluttonous, drunken, rebellious son. You must stone him to death. You must purge the evil from you. Deuteronomy 22, 21. They will bring the woman, this is referring to a sexually immoral woman, to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city will stone her to death, for she has committed an outrage in Israel by being promiscuous in her father's house. You must purge the evil from you. Deuteronomy 22, 24. You must take the two of them out to the gate of that city and stone them to death. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's fiance. You must purge the evil from you. Deuteronomy 24:7. If a man is discovered kidnapping one of his Israelite brothers, whether he treats them as a slave or sells him, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from you. So this is what Moses had to worry with. Idolaters, sexual immorality, people, perjurers, kidnappers. They're supposed to be purged, kicked out. And all these people talk about, well, you know, the church is a visible church. It has unbelievers and believers. Listen, I know you can't get rid of every unbeliever because there's snakes in the grass, there's faults, there's wolves in sheep's clothing and all that. But to the best of your ability, if somebody makes a credible profession of faith in Christ, you have to accept them. But if they start committing sin, if they start denying the basic truths, Nicene truths, if you will, 
of the faith, you got to kick them out. If they start behaving immorally, if they're committing adultery, they're shacked up with one another. And how many times does that happen? And the church says, well, we don't want to do, say anything about that. You've got to say something about it. This idea that the wheat and the tares are going to be together. Well, first of all, that metaphor of wheat and tares was referring to the world. It wasn't referring to the church. That's, that bugs the heck out of me. People always say, oh, you've got to have tares. We're not going to do anything about the tares. Because Jesus said to let them grow up together with the wheat until the... Now, he's talking about the world. He would say, you're not supposed to, to try to purge the world of its sin. Paul is saying the same thing here. What have I got to do with outsiders? You can't purge the world of its sin. Only God can do that. We can't have any kind of a revolution, any kind of theonomy revolution where the church rules the world with the law. That's nonsense. Can't happen. It's not going to happen. But by golly, we can control our small little house churches and our small little churches, or even if you've got a bigger church, you can control the sin that's in there if you exercise church discipline. And of course, what is often not done in the American church today? How many times have you even heard of a church exercising this discipline? Well, I need to stop here. I'm getting so excited. I'm slurring my words. We're going to take up chapter 6 in our next audio where Paul talks about the problem of Corinthians suing themselves, the Corinthian believers suing themselves in pagan courts, and then we're going to talk about sexual immorality and how the Corinthians needed to flee from it. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.